host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, CEO of Circle Social, a strategic behavioral health and addiction treatment marketing firm. Today, we are speaking with Tyler Tisdale, who is the CEO of Pinnacle Peak Recovery. And we've walked through his experience of bootstrapping and building a treatment program from scratch. So they started off with an IOP, and then they now have a number of residentials and detox and expanded their IOP and are continuing expansions within the Phoenix area and eventually across Arizona. So excellent experience, and I'm very excited to be talking to him. But before we get into that, I want to hear from our sponsors, ERP Health. Outcome tracking is made easy with ERP Health. ERP Health is the U.S. standard outcome tracking platform to deliver measurement-based care for behavioral health. Their products are equipped with tools to improve population health, enhance the experience and outcomes of patients, and reduce the cost of care in our communities. Tracking outcomes to individualize treatment and deliver measurement-based care benefits both providers and patients. You can visit erphealth.com to learn more and book a demo today. So as I mentioned, Tyler has bootstrapped the business with some partners, and we are going to do a deep dive into his experience about growing a treatment program from scratch. I've known Tyler, and we've worked together for, I want to say, six years at this point, and it's just been absolutely great to watch them grow and be successful. And it's definitely not straight up. You know, There are ups and downs, like in any business environment. And so we talk about some of the challenges, how we deal with failure, how we deal with bootstrapping, um, how we look at investment and what makes sense when we're trying to grow. We all know the business of SUD and behavioral health is not easy. Sometimes people make it sound that way, but it absolutely is not. And so I really appreciate Tyler being willing to come on and just share his experiences of growing from zero to where they are today with multiple facilities and multiple locations and expanded beds and services. And so it's just a real pleasure uh, hearing from Tyler and his experiences are ones that I think anyone out there that's trying to build a business big or small can really learn from because some of the guidance that he provides is applicable in a large variety of scenarios and business cases. So with that, let's jump in. Hey, Tyler, really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. This has been a long time coming, so I'm excited we finally were able to make it work. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Pinnacle Peak? Yeah, absolutely. Appreciate um, you having me. So I was born and raised in the Bay Area. I've been in Arizona for the last uh, 11 years. I got sober out here, and I'm still very active in my own recovery program. And yeah, I'm the founder and CEO of Pinnacle Peak Recovery. Pinnacle Peak is a substance abuse treatment center in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're a full continuum. So we do detox, residential, PHP, IOP, and evening IOP. And we're we're mostly in network. And we started in late 2015. So what made you want to start a treatment program? 
Yeah, I've always had an entrepreneur spirit and I'm very passionate about recovery. And when my original partner mentioned uh, that he needed help uh, opening a center in Arizona, I was very interested. Honestly, I felt like I was throwing a bluff out at him when I said yes. And the next thing you know, I was looking for office space and buying a van. <laughs> so, I mean, you started Pinnacle Peak back in you know, kind of the, the auto network wild west in Arizona. So just walk through that experience a little bit. What have you learned along the way? Yeah, I've learned so much along the way and had a lot of ups and downs early on, specifically with my partner, and we could touch on that. But I would say uh, the biggest thing that comes to mind that's such a contrast from back then and something you have not only taught us but showed us is the power of branding. Back then, marketing was very transactional when looking at CPAs, at least it was for us. Yeah, I'd say that was a norm back then. It's still a norm in some places, <laughs> but you've grown a lot. I mean, you started off as just the IOP and you've expanded to residential and detox and you're growing all of those programs now. Can you just I mean, walk us through the experience a bit? How has that been for you, You know, especially as a first time entrepreneur? What does that look like? Go through the feelings, the process, the successes, the failures, you know, whatever you want to get into. Yeah, absolutely. So we have grown a lot. So originally, I'll just kind of walk you through the beginning until now. So originally, when we opened up, I was 50-50 partners with someone, and they knew a lot more about treatment than I did at the time, at least it seemed. And so I was just kind of the guy on the ground out here, and they were telling me what to do. And very early on, I started seeing things and becoming uncomfortable with things, specifically around our lab practices. I didn't really know all the ins and outs of labs back then. And so I became uncomfortable with it, started hearing some murmuring, and I, I confronted him on it and just pretty much told him relatively quickly, I'd say within the first six months, that, hey, I'm not comfortable with this. I want to change uh, lab companies. and he was not happy about that. And so then it became a discussion of whether he was going to buy me out or I would buy him out. We very much so bootstrapped it from the beginning. And I was not in a financial situation where I could just like easily buy him out. Um, so this became a grueling one year process of going back and forth, trying to figure out a resolution, whether he was going to buy me out or I was going to buy him out. And I was 90% sure I was going to be the one walking just due to my personal resources and ability to buy him out. And finally, after I would say about nine months, the tables turned and there was a deal on the table for me to buy him out. And it was on a, a very favorable payment plan with zero interest. And I was essentially able just to use the profits from the company to buy him out. And so I, I was very scared. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I was also excited. And I, um, I bought him out, we closed the deal. And instantly I had so many ideas that I was excited to execute. And I, and I had these ideas for a while, but we just weren't on the same page. And these are simple concepts. We weren't trying to reinvent the wheel. I saw what was working. I saw what some of the larger organizations that were doing that had success. And uh, some of those things were really basic. Some of those things seemed a little far-fetched for us at the time, but I, I knew what they were. And it was first things first was to bring billing in-house. That was an easy way to shave 
you know, five, 6% gross revenues expense just right off the top and bring it in because we had already had a lot of the pieces in place to kind of babysit the billing company. We had the billing manager, we had a therapist working full-time on UR. So all we had to do was buy the software, get some training and add a VOB person. So we brought billing in-house. The second thing more long-term that I knew that we wanted to do was be full continuum and be in network. And so that's what we set out to do. Uh, around that time, I was feeling a lot of feelings like imposter syndrome and lack of confidence and, you know, just a little in over my head, like, you know, I don't deserve this. How did I end up in this position? Like, I'm not good enough. And so at that point, I joined an organization that was recommended to me called Entrepreneur Organization, EO. It's a worldwide organization with, I think, like over 10,000 members. In Arizona, our chapter alone has almost 200 members. And so this was a game changer for me. I learned a lot about being an entrepreneur and learned I was not alone with the feelings I was having and just got a lot of tools for the toolbox that gave me the confidence that I needed to, you know, set out this vision and, and really execute on it. I love that story. I think there's a couple of different pieces that's worth digging into here. So one, you know, on our end at Circle Social, we talked to a lot of new business owners or a lot of startups or a lot of smaller organizations. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, 90% of them stay small. So whether you're a six bed in California or an IOP in Massachusetts, or even older hundred bed provider that's been around a long time, but they just stay flat. They never experience growth. And there's a lot of challenges that they run into from just working in the business rather than on the business. A lot of the time, you know, kind of yeah. being stuck in that hustle culture becomes really common. Or some of the issues that you brought up, like fear of where do I go next? How do I make this work? Do you know what investments do I make is always a big question because there's always a risk involved. So can you talk through that a little bit more in detail of just your experience of deciding to invest, how did you choose what to invest in and how did you work on the business rather than in the business? Yeah, well, from the beginning, we've always set out to have a really good program and kind of had it, had a understanding wherever that came from that, you know, the program is the, is the product. And so we've always tried to have, have a great program from day one. And so that's, has been an easy thing for us to invest in is, is our clinical program. And we still do that to this day is at the end of the day, we're just trying to have a great program and compete with some of the bigger names in Arizona and across the country. As far as like working on the business and not in the business, I'm very much so a visionary at heart and an entrepreneur at heart. And I have a new idea every week. And it's my job to come up with new ideas and talk to people in the industry, see what's coming, see what's on the horizon. And so I have my head's just full of ideas. I think the biggest challenge that I face is just honestly staying out of the way. So my personality type, like I need to be out of the business because if I'm in the business, I'll be tinkering too much and just honestly getting in the way of everyone. And a system that's really helped with that is EOS, which is the Entrepreneur Operating System. There's a book called Traction that outlines it. It's a very easy read. If you've never heard of it, I would suggest picking it up. Um, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, so uh, EOS is really just an all-encompassing operating system on how to run the business. And one of the components of it is 
right people, right seats. And so let's just touch on the uh, right seats. It's really about like having the right positions within the business or the organization um, that are optimal for success and then putting the right people in those seats. And so our uh, organizational structure or accountability chart, more of an EOS term is me at the top as a visionary, my partner, who's the uh, COO, but in EOS, it's called the integrator. And then all of the uh, leadership positions report to my partner, the COO. My partner is way more systems oriented and he's great at accountability and great at execution, but he really struggles with thinking long-term. And I'm really great at uh, long-term thinking strategy, but I'm awful at accountability and like systems. And so the feedback I get from my team all the time is like, um, kind of like slow down, you know? And so I got to really be cognizant of that. And, um, it, it's honestly been a game changer implementing that system. I know you've heard of it. Um, there's other organizations within the behavioral health field that run it. And that's kind of how, We've done it, and that's kind of how I've stayed out of the stayed uh, out of the business and working on the business. Yeah, traction, I'll second that is is a great buck. It's just an excellent, simple framework for focusing on what needs to be focused on. So I would also recommend anyone listening to check that out if they haven't before. Whether you're a new business or long standing, it's very very helpful. You mentioned yeah. having the right people in the right seats. I think that's another big one that is interestingly, from my perspective, just working with so many providers in different places, it's, it's a little bit lacking in the SUD space for whatever reason. I think that's one of the reasons that you guys have been successful in your ability to grow where a lot of other providers struggle to do so because they're doing everything. When I talk to the CEO, the CEO is involved in marketing, they're involved in business development, they're involved in the operations, they're they're doing everything. Whereas you've figured out where your strengths are, you figured out where your team strengths are, and you've been able to delegate appropriately. And you know when to step back. I mean, SUD could learn a lot, I think, from your experience in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Um, because I mean, when you know, when we're dealing with uh, like dental organizations or hospitals or something, if I go to a hospital CEO and I say, "Hey, I've got a question around marketing," you know, what do you guys do? He goes, "I don't know." He goes, "My CMO does that, right? I give him the budget; he does the stuff." You know, a dentist, let's say you're a smaller one, they're going to go, "Well, I don't know how any of that stuff works." And you know, we try and find a good vendor and see someone that we can work with. Whereas in SUD, people are so hyper involved in things. So looking at that delegation and a little bit more about your experience stepping back a little bit how did that feel at first and maybe how does it still feel and then what have you done to help yourself and your team be successful in appropriate delegation or even just finding the right talent for the right seat yeah so as far as like right talent right seat this is also part of the eos uh framework but it's the gwc do they get it do they want it? Do they have the capacity to do it? So our organizational chart or accountability chart not only has the seats, like just in the traditional sense, when you look at any org chart, but it also has the high level roles and responsibilities. So for a therapist, it might be individual therapy, group therapy, notes, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
for each position, we're looking at, okay, does this candidate get it? Do they understand it? Do they want it? And the, do they have the capacity to do it? And so that's what we're looking at as far as getting the right person in the right seat. But as far as delegation, really great topic because I have a great tool or framework for delegation. So it's called Delegate and Elevate. And I'll send it to you if you want to clip it to the show notes. Yeah. And so what it is, it's it's four quadrants. It's do you love doing it and are you great at it? That's the top left quadrant. And the top right one next to that is do you like doing it and are you good at it? And then the bottom left one is you don't like it, but you're good at it. And then the bottom right one is you don't like it and you're not good at it. And so the whole idea is just to try to have things on your plate that you love doing and that you're great at it. So it's funny you use that example about the CEO and marketing, because oddly enough, like I love marketing and I'm good at it. So this is, this is something that I I still do. And I would say my role uh, as CEO of my organization or, or Pinnacle Peak Recovery is mainly spent on uh, branding and high level relationships and talking with people in the community to have a good understanding of what's coming um, down the, the, the pike in the near future in our space, just to make sure there aren't any landmines aheads that, ahead that we're not avoiding and communicating that to my team. And then also working with our legion leadership team on strategic planning and setting, you know, 10-year goals, five-year goals, uh, one-year goals, and then quarterly goals around those to uh, get to our long-term goal. And then communicating that vision to the entire organization to make sure we're all on the same page. But the reason uh, why I think doing what I love is really important to me is because I, I own the business and, you know, it's, it's important to me and for my quality of life that I show up every day doing something that I love, not only that, but also just like I mentioned earlier, staying out of the way. So a lot of people are surprised to hear this, but I do all of our content creation around for uh, TikTok and our social media uh, platforms like Instagram reels and stuff, all the vertical content. I do that and I love doing it. And I do our podcasts as well. And within doing that, what I've realized is that it just helps me stay out of the way too. Cause if I'm bored twiddling my thumbs, like I'm bound to get involved into something and poke my nose somewhere where I could honestly cause more damage or harm than good. And like an executive CEO that's like more corporate, maybe listening to this and scratching his head. But if you're an entrepreneur, I'm sure you could relate to this because as like a pure entrepreneur spirit, straight visionary, it's important for me just to kind of stay out of the way. Yeah, I love that example. You know, on my end, I really like the strategy piece and I like the consulting work that we do. But, you know, the consulting work is really a minority of our revenue at Circle Social, but I love it. And, you know, the team's always asking, like, well, why don't you spend more time on the marketing side? Like, we could grow faster. And they're right, we could. But I just really love the the consulting piece of it and the high level strategy and, and being boots on the ground all the time. And it keeps me out of their hair because the other thing that I, I really like and I'm really good at is writing. And when I've got time, I start digging through all the team stuff. <laughs> they start getting all these messages where, you know, I've got suggestions or I've got edits or I've, you know, building a new system process for the content team or the, you know, anyway, I get all in their, all in their business and it pros and cons to that. <laughs> yeah, no, so for I sure. Feel you. I love it. I, I like, yeah, I like that example. 
And, and someone's got to do it. And, it. and it really, I think it helps from the employee side, working for an organization when it's structured and coming from one person. If you have like multiple people from the top, like hounding you about different things, it could get really overwhelming. I agree. Yeah, that's one thing I had to teach myself to do as the company got bigger is rather than replying directly to people, I would have to go through the manager. And that was just better to go through the department head. They could filter it. They knew the team better because they were working with them one-on-one every day. So that message just was clearer for them. And they were able to better translate into whatever the preferred communication style of the individual was a lot of the time. Whereas, because I'm not working with them every day, you know, I I tend to be pretty fast and blunt and that works for some people, not for others. Uh, So it just worked a lot better to communicate through the proper channels I found. And that's the only way to really remove yourself is to have those boundaries because you're going to get those emails as you're transitioning out of the business and more working on the business and in it, you're going to get all these emails. And and the only way that I found through my experience is really being disciplined about your uh, responses and who you're responding to and who you're directing to or rerouting to the proper channels. I had someone ask me about the dress code and this might be kind of petty, but I just said, well, Talk with uh, Brandon about that. Uh, who's our operations director? Is a VHT. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I do the same thing. You know, I forward stuff on all the time. I'm like, that's that's for this department had to make a decision on. You know, they own that. I'm, I'm. You know, if they ask my opinion, I'll give it. But until they do that, it's theirs, and they do whatever they need to do, and I trust them to do it. I agree with you. Uh, that's, I think that's yeah. a great way to do it. So one thing I want to ask is related to the business growth, as well as, you know, your vision for it, Phoenix and the area, Scottsdale, and you had Prescott back in the day, which was really big, really crowded, right? It's a very crowded area for treatment providers. So how have you found, or what do you think the differentiators are for Pinnacle Peak? How are you standing out from all the other providers in the area? Yeah, I think it comes down to our program and just prioritizing having a great clinical program and and not really sparing expenses. For example, I've seen private equity companies come in this space and just fall on their face. And I think how how they're failing is cutting too many costs and corners around the clinical program and not having a great operational system in place or just, you know, not having sophisticated operations. They hire, uh, there's one place that I have in mind that just turns over their leadership team like every 18 months, it seems. And they hire a lot of people out of hospital executives and, and just other industries and just like kind of trying to throw money at the issue. And there's nothing like a hospital executive could absolutely succeed in our space. I'm, I'm not saying that by any means, but I guess more so what I'm saying is they just don't really have, this is a very specific niche when in healthcare, substance abuse uh, treatment. And there's a lot of nuances to it that make it work. And I don't think you'll find that in other places and vice versa. And so I think what we've done to kind of separate and uh, allow us to succeed in this market is the operational component, just having really sophisticated operations and systems and discipline around that. And then also just having a, a great clinical program and then working with you guys and getting that message out there. And we haven't done it perfect at all. Like I'm honestly looking back, we really struggled with business development for years and 
I think that's an area that we can still improve on, but, you know, we're able to, to make it work. Yeah. Obviously knowing you guys as well as I do, and then knowing that area very well, you guys definitely stand out in terms of your clinical product and the focus on it. And when you talk about private equity or maybe people throwing money at things, I see it all the time. People are trying to optimize their acquisition metrics, right? How do I improve the margin? How do I lower my CPA? How do I increase our length of stay? They're always focused on these numbers. And that's obviously an important part of the financial sustainability of your business. But you said it best when you said our, our clinical program, is it's our product, it's our service. It is what makes us who and what we are. And that focus has set you guys apart and I think has led to a lot of the growth that you've experienced where some of these other providers that you're mentioning, absolutely, they're just, they're just spinning through executives. They're you know on the same hamster wheel, not getting anywhere because they're trying to tweak their CPA rather than looking at their program overall and saying, hey, how can we be a better provider? And then we can worry about optimizing the CPA. Yeah. Definitely. And that's what we did when you came in here and, and we started working with each other when you first uh, started getting Circle Social going. Yeah, that was a while um, ago. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I found you. I just want to give you and this, shout, this podcast a shout out because I found I found you online and then started listening to the podcast and the podcast, I think, built the trust to reach out. And then we started working with each other. And that's always been your messaging is like, work, work on the, you got to work on the, uh, the clinical program and you come in, like you said, you love to do, you come in and look at the, the programming, the operations and, and everything as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it all fits together. It's not isolated departments where I think a lot, well, I know a lot of people get stuck because they get too isolated for whatever reason, either they don't know how to integrate it or they've gotten too big and things get separated bureaucratically, which just happens, or they don't know how to look at the different pieces and so they avoid it. You know, going back to your delegation piece, you 100% should focus on what you love, you know, what's your special superpower, or unique talent, go really big in that, but then also understand what your gaps are and put the right people in the right seats to make sure that the focus is still there for those areas as well. Definitely. So you mentioned one of your struggles was the business development piece. Can you just walk us through a couple of the challenges? Like what were maybe two or three of the biggest challenges that you faced along the way and how how did you deal with them or how might you deal with them differently now we're looking back? Yeah, absolutely. So in the beginning, when we first opened up, we were getting clients from all over the country and we really, through working with you guys, shifted to a more localized approach. And I'll go off on a little bit of a tangent and then get us back on topic. But back then, that that was kind of more common. And you had the like sun, sunshine states, if you will, that had most of the treatment centers, California, Arizona, Texas, and Florida. But then the uh, industry started growing and maturing and, and started a lot of centers started opening up in all over the country. And during that time, we were hiring business development reps. We had one local, we had one in California. I think, I mean, we had one in Kansas at one time, just like ran, random places with not a much, bunch of thought around it. And then also we were kind of playing the game of uh, Rolodex, like kind of who's got the biggest Rolodex, let's bring them in. And 
And that wasn't working for us. And over time and bumping our head multiple times, we learned for us, the most important attribute in a business development person was integrity. And that's one of our core values. And so really just structuring interview questions to find people that align with our core values. And that was as a, as a whole, not just the business development department, but we found that that was the most important thing because business development has a lot of freedom. You're not really micromanaging them. And so it's really important that they have the integrity and work ethic to do everything that they need to do um, during the day. And in conjunction with going through that process, we also brought you and another gentleman in, I forget his name, to do some training. Yeah, it was me and Char back then. Yeah, Char was Yeah. There. Yeah. Yeah, that helped a lot, just like building out a system and a playbook. And honestly, I think part of it too was just kind of getting, I don't want to say lucky, because we if I say that, then we got unlucky a lot of times as well. But just finally getting those right people in the department, and then it just kind of took off. And they're no longer with us. One of them actually is part owner of a, a, a treatment center here locally, like a trauma program. But just having her and that team at the time just really out there for a while, like a couple years, just having the consistent face like really helped. And that's another thing we look for now moving forward is just we just recognize the intrinsic value of like consistency, like having a long term person in that role helps a lot. It's super important. I've said on the show a million times, the book of business is not the way to go. And we know from the data, I mean, we see it across the country constantly. If you have business development reps who have been with you for a long time, they perform significantly better. And it's not time in the industry. It's time with a specific provider. Really, really important. Yeah. And I will say, you know, we're, we're not where we want to be with the business development side. So we're bringing in another expert to do some consulting for the next six months. And he's starting this month. And that's, you know, been kind of the name of the game for us is like, we know we're not experts, we try to stay out of the way. And if we're not experts in that specific topic, then we'll, we'll bring in someone who is to kind of show us the way. What about as you've gone through the growth stages, you know, usually the systems and processes that you have in place, you know, what got you here won't get you there. Right? Yeah. Can you talk about some of those major shifts that happened and what you had to change to get to that next level? Absolutely. So um, through EO, the entrepreneur organization I'm in, I went to Harvard like eight months ago for executive education. It was a week-long program with the Harvard faculty with 100 other members of EO from all over the world. There were guys from India there, Asia, America. It, it was awesome. And one thing I learned there from one of the Harvard uh, uh, professors was every time your business doubles, you're going to ch change over your leadership team quite a bit. And every time it triples, every system completely breaks down. And so it's a great question. I think what got us to the, you know, where we're at in the beginning, like the first few years None of that we still do today. And EOS really kind of got us to, to the next level. Now we're running into, I mean, communication is a huge thing. It's one of our struggles. I think it's a lot of people's struggles to just 
communication and also like looking for potential waste and just kind of doing unnecessary things because that's just the only way you know how to do it. And so a new system that we're putting into place now is we offered everyone in the organization to do Lean Six Sigma training and to get there, I believe it was, uh, there's like green belt, yellow belt, black belt. And so I believe it was like yellow belt training, the middle middle one. And so we've already had two people complete the whole training. This was a quarterly goal or an annual goal this year. And we have 15 people out of uh, 50 enrolled in into uh, the training. And so that's something we're doing as well. And from what I'm gathering from the individuals that are doing it, one of them's our operations director. The other one is our my partner, who's the COO or integrator, is like just like the importance of slowing down and not making decisions quickly. Like it's the more planning you put into something, the better the outcome. Because if you have a great strategy and great plan and great vision, even if it's like properly communicated, if you do it too quick without thinking about all of the uh, potential outcomes or things that need to go into it, it just becomes more work than if you put the planning in. So that's like one thing that really comes to mind on like what we're doing right now. You mentioned that as something new, but I think that's one of the reasons that you guys also have been quite successful is you're not bouncing from idea to idea. You maybe did in the beginning, right? You mentioned that a little bit, that that was the initial experience. And that's what we see constantly in this space is like, we're going to try X, Y, Z, try it for three weeks, four weeks, and then, ah, it's not working. We're going to try something completely different. Ah, it's not working. We're going to try something completely different. But the reality is for really big changes and significant changes, you often need quite a bit of time, you know, three months, yeah. eight months, sometimes a year. What would be what would be your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think you're spot on. I think for me as a visionary and entrepreneur, like I, I want to do it now. Like, why can't we do it now? But this is exactly what I mean about me staying out of the way and having the right people in the right seats and the systems in place to kind of shelter us from that thinking. And so as far as the timeline goes, believe it or not, like we have a pretty big strategic change coming out. We're about to announce it here tomorrow to, or not tomorrow, the, the following day in an all staff meeting. So, and I know I'm, I keep going on these tangents, but I just want to give some more context. So, so we have a quarterly leadership meeting and the leadership team consists of the clinical director, operations director, medical director, you know, like just kind of those core components that you see in treatment and the leadership meetings is where the strategic planning takes place. We need universal buy-in from everybody on the leadership team. That way, if you don't have the buy-in, then you have one person saying like, yeah, this is a horrible idea to their team. And it's just like, you don't have that unity. And so we all get on the same page. And then what we just did that and got on the same page with this pretty big pivot we're going to do. It's not a, it's not a pivot, but just like an added service line. And so then we take it to the state of the state meeting which is an all staff meeting. And we're going to get everybody on the same page to make sure they know the, the vision and the milestones to get there. But to roll this out, I wanted to roll it out. Like right now we're talking, it's uh, January or July 3rd. I wanted to roll it out by the beginning of Q4. Cause that's just, you know, that, like I said, that's just like kind of the visionary traits, but my team, the leadership team's thinking like, no, this is actually going to be like Q2 of next year. So we're like kind of nine months out from executing on this. So there's a lot of planning that needs to happen or a lot of planning and execution that needs to happen prior to doing it to make sure that we roll it out the right way. 
Yeah. And it requires a lot of investment. I think that's the other thing I want to ask about is as you're growing, sometimes people are really impatient for profit, which can be good. That can be smart to have, you know, the financial sustainability piece front and center. But usually growth requires investment. If you want to get to that next level, you have to invest in something, whether it's your team or additional marketing or a new building. How do you think about investing for growth and still managing overall profitability? Yeah, I think the growth that we've set out to do, you know, we've completely, well, pretty much bootstrapped all of our growth. And we're up to 36 residential beds, 10 detox beds, and we have an outpatient capacity of around 50. So we've gotten like pretty big for our market. I'm sure people listening to this have much larger organizations and, and some smaller. But so in, you know, doing this pretty much organically and scaling Pinnacle Peak along the way without taking on significant outside investment, we've had to make sac- sacrifices for on the ownership side on taking those profits. I think how we look at profitability is more about organizational uh, health and just keeping everyone's job secure and our company afloat and secure. So managing profitability along the way has literally been nothing outside of that. Let's just have a healthy organization, stay alive until we get to where we're going. Something else I wanted to look at was the clinical piece that we've talked about throughout is where it's front and center for Pinnacle Peak, but neither yourself nor your partner are clinicians. So how do you think about leadership from a clinical standpoint? You know, how involved do you get? How do you know who to look for? Are there KPIs in place? Just kind of walk us through how you look at quality clinical care without being a clinician yourself. Yeah, we use um, outcome metrics and also have clinical metrics. And we look at this on the scorecard. Each leader on the leadership team has a uh, metrics that they're responsible that we're looking at every week. And really, that those can change just depending on consistency. Our clinical team looks at risk factors, protective factors, and client satisfaction. But it just really, it's, it's pretty fluid as far as what metrics we're looking at. Specifically, if there's issues coming up, like AMAs, we'll start really looking at, at that as well. I think, to answer your question, how much involved is the clinical side in the whole, the leadership team, right? Was that your question? I think that's part of it, right? Is just how are you ensuring that clinical quality that you want? I think both holding the team accountable, maybe the clinical quality, but how are you assessing it? How do you determine clinical quality, you know, from your perspective in the leadership role? Yeah. So outcomes is a big one, looking at outcomes and client surveys. And then on the, on our scorecard that we look at weekly, each leader on the leadership team has metrics that they're responsible for. And the clinical director is responsible for, I'm just looking at her metrics right now. We're looking at risk factors, protective factors, and client satisfaction. Okay. And so you guys are constantly looking at those numbers and that helps you determine how the team's doing overall. You know, do you have the right person in the right seat, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, I think through surveying and uh, through reviews, we're making sure we have the right person in the right seat. I think when it comes to the clinical side, it becomes pretty apparent when you don't have the right person in the right seat. It's a tricky role to hire for. One, you need a sound clinician who is really good at building out programs. Two, they need to know substance abuse. 
because we've had clinicians that are more mental health specific come in to be clinical director, and we've just had challenges surrounding that. And then three, they need to be a team player because, you know, a lot of, we've had some clinical directors in the past that, and we haven't had a ton, I'm just kind of remembering the ones that we've had that are not so much of a team player and kind of want to, to run the show because it's their license on the line, which I totally respect respect like one of our priorities is ethics and integrity we're not doing anything crazy but it could get a little hard to work with if that makes sense have you seen that on your side yeah definitely people very entrenched in certain viewpoints that want things done their way i'd say we actually see it more on the medical director side than clinical director side but it happens in both roles and that license thing comes up kind of a lot it creates challenges to standardization. An easy one that we've actually had come up a couple times uh, fairly recently is like working with pregnant women. You know, someone someone's willing to do it, and then someone else isn't willing to do it. Well, how do you how do you standardize a program where you you got you know your clinical or your medical staff constantly flip flopping like what they're willing to do based on location, based on hires, based on history? It's challenging. So that's why I think it's just such an interesting question to ask CEOs like yourself about how you how you manage that. Yeah, definitely. So going back to the marketing piece that you really like, you do have a phenomenal TikTok channel. And it's interesting because you can't market, you can't do paid marketing on TikTok for whatever reason. They just don't allow SUD providers to do it. But you've created a huge following organically through just your your Pinnacle Peak TikTok channel. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, how to get started? How is it working for you? What do you like about it so much? Yeah, absolutely. So we were doing funny skits in uh, 2016 for a YouTube and a Facebook page that I created. And I created it through just like following Gary Vaynerchuk and, uh, you know, he's big on social media presence and, and branding through social media. And so I thought of a unique way to do it for recovery. And that was just to make like funny skits that people in recovery would relate to and laugh at. So we started it in uh, 2016, just doing YouTube and Facebook, but it, it didn't really last a long time. It kind of lost some steam. And when TikTok first came out, I heard all the hype, like all of us did, and I downloaded it and I posted a video of me skipping a golf ball across a pond, you know, just like hitting like a, a, a six iron or whatever. And it just like skipped across the pond and went up to the green. And it got 16,000 views and I had like zero followers at the time. And I was impressed by the reach, but I didn't really use it much for the next couple of years. And suddenly in uh, November of 2021, the thought crossed my mind that we should do a TikTok for Pinnacle. And I always love making the funny videos and stuff. And for whatever reason, like it just hit me that, hey, I got the 16,000 views. Maybe I heard something about how good TikTok's reach is. And so I, you know, set out to do it. And um, what I love about doing it is another one of our core values is fun. We have four. So it's fun, integrity, collaborate, and compassion. And so one of our core values is, is fun. And so we have a lot of fun around here at the center. And it's a great way to really incorporate that core value and showcase it to the world, so to speak. And so all of the staff are involved, not all of them, but you know, a lot of the staff get involved and we make people feel a part of 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's a really cool thing. Yeah, I'll definitely add that to the TikTok notes. For the listeners, I definitely recommend checking it out. It's the best uh, TikTok channel I know in the recovery space. It's just done really well. I think you guys do a phenomenal job with it. It does get a lot of followers and impressions. And I think the, obviously the question a lot of people are interested in, I mean, have you seen results from it in terms of it helping with the growth of Pinnacle Peak? Yeah, I wouldn't say like significant impact. Like it's not the reason why we've grown, but we we get admits from it. It's it's kind of like Facebook. It's hard to track because it's a lot of top funnel marketing, like just brand awareness. But we do get direct admits from it where people come in and and the reason why they came to Pinnacle Peak is because of TikTok. We just had a gentleman uh, fly out from Oregon to come to our center full continuum and he found us on TikTok. Um, another cool piece was I was at the um, the conference in Palm Spring, the West Coast Symposium, and I had like three people or four people wanting to take selfies with me, like almost like a celebrity. And I, it was it was crazy. It was uh, it was really cool. And a lot of people came by our booth. They knew who we were because of our TikTok. And I think we just like kind of really branded ourselves as the the center with the TikTok and the content that we put out is very relatable. It's funny. It's I wouldn't say inappropriate, but, you know, we were a lot of us are in recovery. So we just make jokes about active addiction and stuff. So a lot of people can relate to it and find it funny. I love it. And I'll, you know, I'll just plug the marketing perspective on it. There is so much value in that kind of top of funnel content that a lot of executives have a hard time seeing, but it's always happening. If you think for the, you know, every one person that tells you that like, yeah, I was watching your TikTok and that made me want to come in. There's another 10, 20, 30 of them that influenced their decision, even if it wasn't the, the final thing. I remember way back in an old life when I used to do education and teaching in school management, I had an education blog and I would do a lot of activity on that. I was pretty active on Twitter and things like that back in the day. And so I'd speak at these conferences all over the world, like Bulgaria and Greece and Turkey and China. And I'd show up at these conferences and all these people would know who I was. I'm like, I have no idea who you are. And they're like, oh, I read your blog. I've been reading your blog for two years, you know, and it just hits so cool. Yeah, but it works. It works yeah. all the time, you know. All right. Well, definitely check out Pinnacle Peaks TikTok. I'll put in the show notes. And then as we kind of wrap this up here, where do you see Pinnacle Peak going in the future? Yeah. So our, our five-year goal is to become Arizona's most recognizable in-network center for mental health trauma and substance abuse. So it's really about um, kind of pivoting into some more service lines. And like I said, first step is just getting all of our staff on the same page, getting that buy-in, doing a lot of prep work to execute on it, and then rolling out the different programming. You know, I should have asked you this actually fits well with your answer there. How do you deal with failure? Because obviously it happens, mistakes happen, struggles happen. So as you've been doing yeah. the organization, how have you handled that? Do you have a system for it? Do you deal with it differently every time? You know, just give us your thoughts there. Yeah, absolutely. I think the biggest failure that comes to mind is the vision originally, the big, hairy, audacious goal. So that's called a BHAG. 
our BHAG was to have a hub and spoke model. And so the hub was the full continuum of care and the spokes were integrated care clinics across the state of Arizona that were doing psych, uh, MAT, primary care and counseling. And it was a great idea. We just didn't execute on it. And I think there's several factors, but one of them was we were just trying to do too much at once. Uh, we we're building out the 36 bed residential center, um, adding a 10 bed detox center and the integrated care, the first integrated care clinic all at once. In the billing for the, the services at an integrated care, there's a lot more of them and they pay a lot less, obviously. So the, the margins are a little thinner and you just need to really execute on that. And we just weren't able to do it at the same time of doing everything else. So I think, you know, we didn't give up right away. Uh, we really kind of kept it going till the bitter end until we kind of just threw up our arms and just said, you know, I'm sure we could have pulled it off if we kept going, but we just realized at that point that it was not worth the headache and the money that it was costing us at the time. So I think we just really compartmentalized it and uh, just, you know, took it as a loss and moved on. We're not, you're not going to bat a thousand. So it's like, really just recognizing that, you know, it's not like you're, we're going to be perfect along the way, but I think now where we're headed, I think is better than our original vision. And uh, I feel more confident in, in it as well. I love both those points. One, you're not going to hit every pitch, right? Good. A good hitter. It's what 30%, one in three. Yeah. So super important to remember. And then the steady, steady growth. I think in the world, especially with how much investment came into this field of SUD and, and how much money a couple of people made in the early, early days where reimbursements were ridiculous, sometimes people have these ideas where it's just like this massive growth and we're going to make all this money and then expand and help more people. And the reality is that healthcare is a pretty local business for the most part. And you have people's lives at stake as well. So I think there's a certain responsibility that we have to make sure we're maintaining that clinical quality as we have that growth. And so just keeping your eye on the ball, but being comfortable with the slow, steady growth rate versus, you know, having to double or, or triple revenue in two years, I think is a smart play. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. We are trying to grow pretty rapidly with that five-year goal. Um, I would say we're, we're trying to double revenue in five years. And that's reasonable, right? If you're thinking we're yeah. going to grow anywhere from, you know, 10 to 20% per year, right? Yeah. That comes out to a doubling growth rate in five yeah, years. Maybe 15%. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So we're not passive by any means, but yeah, at the same time, I think we've, we've just kind of learned along the way through our own trials and tribula tribulations like and just most importantly i think i touched on it multiple times just having the operational excellence in place and me just kind of staying out of the way as a visionary to kind of hit that sweet spot yeah well like you said you know things break once you double in revenue and then triple in revenue everything breaks everything falls apart you need new people on the team you know so that's part of it too right it's like how how quickly do you want to break <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly 
Uh, well, Tyler, really appreciate the time. It was great getting through all your experiences here. I'm sure really valuable to a lot of the other individuals out there growing organizations, big and small. So if people wanted to get in touch with you or Pinnacle Peak, what would be the best way to do so? Yeah, on social media is the best way to get a hold of Pinnacle Peak. Just shoot us a DM. I have, I'm pretty much managed the Instagram and TikTok. Instagram is probably the best way. If you shoot me a DM on Instagram, you'll be talking to me. So yeah, just hit me up on uh, Instagram uh, or TikTok, but just search Pinnacle Peak Recovery will come up. Well, thanks so much for everyone out there. This is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, and we'll see you next time.